Welcome to the Together Sober Podcast. I am your host, Louise Barnett, former Fortune 100 Global Sales Director turned Jay Shetty Accredited Life Coach. Each week, we will provide you a safe space of guidance, empathy, accountability, and support, helping you to find effortless sobriety and mental peace. You know the whole concept of paying it forward? That's exactly what Hit Subscribe does. It sends a message to the universe, to people who need to hear the lessons and the tools from the Together Sober podcast. Hit subscribe. Welcome back to another episode of the Together Sober podcast, where our mission every single week is to create survival guides out of our collective stories. The story that we have to present to you today is one that's really unique, really special. I'm going to start over because I don't want that beeping in there. Um, I thought I'd turn that off. Um, why did you beep? <laughs> I'm not very popular, so let's just hope it doesn't happen again. Um, okay. Well, I think you're very popular. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. It's so weird. I turned it off. Oh, well. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Together Sober podcast, where our mission every single week is to create survival guides out of our collective stories. The story that we're presenting to you this week is incredibly special, incredibly unique. It is not one that we hear every day. And I'm so grateful to have met this individual. We actually both come from the same coaching community and we somehow stumbled up across each other in the sobriety space. Uh, people who are in recovery tend to gravitate towards one another. And when I first connected with this individual on the phone, I just was immediately gravitated to his energy and everything that he's doing now in his life coming out of his addictive years and into his recovery. So he's truly an inspiration. I can't wait for you to hear his story. I am talking about none other than Dallas Bragg. Dallas grew up being shamed and embarrassed of who he was on the inside. He lived according to social norms, what we would call a normal life, until the age of 36 when he came out as a gay man and immediately left his wife. As a gay man, the shame of his upbringing compounded, and that's when Dallas found crystal meth, a drug that he discovered numbed the shame and made him feel temporarily desirable. After living a lifestyle that quite literally was destroying his life, Dallas's children gave him an ultimatum he could not ignore, and he immediately attended drug treatment and court rehab. Today, Dallas is the proud father of two adult children. He works in the nonprofit space, finding resources such as housing and employment for homeless veterans. He has a doctorate in executive leadership, and thanks to the incredible journey that he's been on so far, he recently launched his own coaching business, which we can't wait to hear about a little bit later. 
Now, Dallas is here upholding the mission of Together Sober <clears throat> Podcast to share his story in hopes that it inspires others, but especially parents and those who entered addiction in the later years of life, as well as gay men who are in active meth addiction. Dallas, so happy you're here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I was just hearing that was like, I was getting emotional <laughs> going back through it. So. It's Thank crazy. You very much. You're welcome. Yeah. It's a crazy like whirlwind of your life in like two paragraphs. <laughs> like, <wow. laughs> like, like it, it doesn't quite yeah. do it justice. Um, like, oh, she's talking about me. <laughs> But because those paragraphs don't do it justice, Dallas, I would love to really give you the floor for some time, give you the mic. And obviously, we know your addictive years didn't start until 36. So wherever you feel is appropriate to begin your story, provide us some context. The floor is yours. And we would love to hear your story, Dallas. Thank you very much. Yeah, so... Addicted, my addictive years to crystal meth didn't start till 36. Obviously, my addiction started very early. And um, so I always have been thinking about my life as a book. So I've kind of named it into three chapters or three sections. <laughs> um, the first one I call Country Roads Take Me Home to the Place I Don't Belong. <laughs> and that's because I grew up in West Virginia. And I, I was born to teenagers. And uh, one my mom was a Pentecostal, very strict. Their whole family was a very strict religious side. And then my father was the a, the typical country kind of redneck, alcoholic, hellraiser. And so growing up, as soon as I realized that I like boys, you know, I didn't fit in either one of those. And so I grew up kind of in this isolation of where do I belong? And, and there's a lot of things that, you know, that I could tell you about what happened in my first seven years that contributed to that. But as I got older, my father was a Marine. And so he was very gruff, very overbearing. And he would say things to me like, I, I, are you sure you're my son? You know, because I wasn't anything like him. And, um, and are you, did something get mixed up somewhere or whatever? And then we, he had a brother, it was my uncle, who was the same age as me, <laughs> West Virginia. And um, so he, he would bring the, he would bring the, you know, he would bring him along to our family gatherings and make, or our family vacations and, and things like that. And he would make comments like, I think you were the son I was supposed to have to his brother, you know? So it was things like that, that compounded this belief in me that I, I didn't belong anywhere. Um, I was, crying out for attention, acceptance, connection. Um, and so that was even more compounded through school and through high school, through elementary school, especially high school, because it's a small school in West Virginia. You know, no one's out as gay. There was there were two other people in the whole school that ended up coming out later. And we incidentally had lunch together. But, you know, it was the the ridicule that I received constantly, the bullying, um, because of the way that I acted, my behavior, you know, all the free, all the, all the, uh, rhymes about me and Dallas Bragg as a fag and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, the, I, that's what I heard growing up. And so again, it was just like on and on and on this story that I just couldn't be myself and that I didn't belong anywhere. And, um, 
So graduating high school, I immediately got married because I was scared to death to be in the world because I knew that I liked men. But, you know, the church told me that I was going to hell. And the other side told me that, you know, my, my dad's side, the message was that I couldn't be that way or I wasn't part of the family. You know, I heard a lot was you're not a real brag. My last name is Bragg, um, which was, you know, also kind of hurtful. So <clears throat> immediately getting married. Um, and <clears throat> that was right out of high school. That marriage only lasted a couple of years. And then I immediately got married again, um, just to feel safe. Um, because I just, you know, I was scared of what I was going to do. And so 12 years of that marriage, um, that's the next section that I would call I'm here, I'm queer, but nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> and that was because <laughs> that was because I, you know, after 12 years and immediately having kids, I just, my, my numbing was, being all for them like we became codependent I dove myself into taking care of everything my wife and kids needed they didn't have to feel they didn't have to do they didn't have to think you know I my self-worth was based on them and so I threw myself into them I threw myself into college you know I was always in college I went all the way up through through doctorate um th that was my addiction that was my numbing at the time um, and it's where I got my, my self-worth too. And that's where I felt like I finally belonged somewhere, but I still didn't belong there because I wasn't being, you know, who I truly was. So that ended up with me being suicidal. Um, I checked myself into a mental facility because I just, I, I couldn't handle this constant cycle of, I would go up in church up to the altar and it would, you know, this, the gay would be delivered from me. And then I, you know, two weeks later, I'd be, watch, you know, sneaking and watching porn and this, this cycle over and over and over and this guilt and the shame just compounded and compounded until I just wanted to end it. Um, and that's when I finally, you know, shared with my wife at the time that I had what the church would call homosexual tendencies. Mm -hmm. And so it was shared under the pretext that we would pray it away and we work together to, to the solve. church that you were attending married with your family was that the pentecostal or a different church it was still yeah very charismatic pentecostal okay. church okay. yeah yeah um and so so eventually i just couldn't i i, I couldn't handle it anymore and i came out mm -hmm. right and so i did this coming out process i wrote you know i wrote a letter and everything and then i just didn't wait i waited i just two weeks later left left my wife and um she was devastated. The kids were devastated because, you know, I everything they knew was was ripped out from under them because I wasn't there to take care of them anymore. But to me, it was I am finally going to be who I, I who I know I am. I'm finally going to belong somewhere. I can finally be who I am and not be judged for it. But the rude awakening was that it was a complete different story. Um when I came into the gay community, I, I, I didn't know anyone who was gay. I didn't. All I knew was Will and Grace on the TV. And so I had this idea of high fives and rainbows. I don't know. I, I just thought that it would be, you know, a celebration, but it was more of a, it was more shame. It was prove yourself. You know, I couldn't get into the groups. There were cliques. There was judging. There was, there was just this whole, like, other realm of isolation that I felt when I got into the gay community that I didn't expect. 
So you finally, after 36 years, have decided to tell the people you love and the world who you are. And then those people essentially didn't accept you either. Right. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, part of that, looking back, I know part of it is the beliefs that I had playing out because I had a belief that no one would accept me ever. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that was part of it. I also believed that they wouldn't accept me. But but there was this part of me that really believed that that they would and was hoped that I would find my place. So I just I didn't know what to do with that. You know, I was devastated because now I had no one to take care of either. So my self-worth was in the the gutter. And so I discovered that this app grinder, which is the, the hookup app for gays. And it's like in real time, you can see in however many feet away from you where a gay person is and they're advertising that they want to have sex. Mm-hmm. And so that that what I is what I turned to to get my self worth and validation was sex. Um, and of course, I had waited thirty six years for this, you know. So I was like a kid in a candy store. Um, <clears throat> but what happened was uh, again, it was it was even more abandonment and more isolation because they wouldn't stay. You know, it was like a one time thing, and I never see them again. Yeah. So it was just compounding, compounding until. I found the meth crowd and um, in the gay world, it's called tea. Um, and the, the advertisement or the code word is to party with a capital T. And so there was just one day I got a message saying, do you want to party? It was Sunday at noon. I was thinking it was like a pool party or a cookout or something like that. And so I was like, okay. And so I came over and that's, it was just one person and a big screen, a, a, a large TV screen with porn going and, that he had a pipe and all this stuff. And so I had no idea what was going on and he thought I did. And he just handed me the pipe. And so instead of, you know, fighting it, I was like, what the hell, what do I have to lose? You know? And so this was 39, I guess. And um, I tried it that day and it was, meth is kind of like it for me. And I think for a lot of gay men, it's like the perfect solution for a gay person because for one thing it's very sexual so we ended up spending four days together mm-hmm. and we had sex almost a whole four days and to me it was an answer it was like a magic pill because he didn't leave we had a lot of sex so I felt validated and um it does a, it's it's a total numbing it does away with any shame any inhibition any embarrassment, you can be whoever you want to be. It's like your, your natural desires come up. Yeah. And so when I experienced that, I was like, this is what I needed. This is what I've been looking for. Um, at the time I was, I had, you know, I was teaching, I was a college professor. I was also working at a law school. I was making six figures and um, I just dove in. I dove in with both feet. And after that first time, I never had that good of an experience again. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always chasing that, you know, and so <clears throat> anyway, um, three years later, two and a half years later, almost three, um, I had, you know, lost my car, I had been evicted from my house, I lost my job, I had been arrested four times, oh, wow. um, and the, and I didn't have my kids anymore. That's how fast that it, it took me. Um, it just sucked. I just got sucked into it so fast because another thing is the community welcomed, which mm-hmm. I thought it was because it was me. But for one thing, it was, you know, it was fresh meat. 
you know, I, I looked good and I had money and I was always supplying. And so I just thought, oh, wow, these people really like me. You know, I feel like I'm part of the family, but, you know, I, really naive. Um, What's interesting about what you just said is it is a bit of a repeat in behavior of the role that you played in your marriage with your children. You mentioned mm -hmm. that your drug was to take care of them and to provide to them and to pay for things and to do these things. And I think it's interesting that you've now come out, obviously, and have kind of slipped into a similar role. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Um, it took me a long time to put that together <laughs> because I would attract young boys. Yeah. And, and young boys who needed rescued mm -hmm. over and over. I would bring them in and house them, you know, and which is ultimately what got me in trouble the first time is the thing about meth too is it's an intelligent drug, very intelligent in that it goes into your brain, goes into your neural pathways, and it can find exactly what your, your, um, your weaknesses are, whether it's fear, whether it's doubt, whether whatever it is, paranoia. Um, if you're pr if you're prone to schizophrenia, it takes that and just runs with it. Magnifies it escalates it. it, magnifies it. And so this, you know, this kid was all messed up and he came and lived with me for a month. And then he left and, and went to the police and told them that all these things were going on in the house. Um, and that's when I first got arrested. They busted through the door and they arrested me. And it was a whole big scene. And, um, you know, he had reported me for date rape, which I didn't. But. So my mugshot was on the evening news with date rape under it. And the kids were getting Snapchats, uh, pictures of me. Your children. On the news. My, ki my children were getting Snapchats of that saying what's going on. So, um, so anyway, uh, that's, you know, that's the, the high level of it. Um, you know, there was a lot of, just a lot of patterns being repeated, but that was the, I'm glad you picked up on that because that was the major one that was that, you know, again, I was finding people to take care of, but I was also feeling validated. Yeah. Um, and then, but then um, the, the turning point was that I started using uh, um, IV mm -hmm. intravenously. And the first time I used IV with someone, I, I was um, contracted HIV. And so from that point, I was just dead, dead. I didn't care anymore. So I didn't, I wasn't having sex. I wasn't attracted to anyone. I was just with these two other people and we lived in my house until the sheriff made me leave. But, you know, I was just using IV all day long. I was stealing, I was doing fraud. I was, you know, I was just doing all this stuff. I was on a death, death wish after that. Yeah. <clears throat> and so the, the long story short about that is, and my turning point was my fourth time in jail. Um, no one would answer my call except my poor daughter, who was made, you know, forced to be an adult through all of this. Mm -hmm. And she came and picked me up. And she and my son took me to a park. You know, I, at that point, I was homeless. I had nothing but my shirt and pants. A um, little bit out of my mind. And... Um, they just took me to this park and my daughter just said to me, you know, you have a choice here and we need a parent and then we need you to be our father. So you have a choice right now. It's either us or it's going to be meth. And so it was my bottom. That was my, that was my rock bottom. And um, so I, I made a choice that day. 
and that that started the rebuilding process you know and <clears throat> the rebuilding process came from i just i got a job quickly waiting tables got two jobs quickly waiting tables i did some other things to make money and um eventually got us back in a, into a house got us back, you know a car i was working the kids were living with me again everything seemed fine i was in drug treatment court so i had i was taking drug tests every, four to five times a week so i had to be sober um, my charges were expunged. Um, they were dismissed and expunged. They were on my record anymore. And that's when the pivotal point came for me, too, is that I walked up to the sink one day when everything was normal and I was started to wash dishes. And all I wanted to do was use. I looked mm -hmm. out the window. I was like, I'm bored. I like, you know, because the rebuilding process was my numbing, too. Yeah. That's what I used to work, numb out. Right? Yeah, it was like going to school. Right. It was like, it was everything yeah. all over again. You yeah, had, a I had a project. I had yeah. a mission and a project and I did it. But after I did it, then I was back to the same level of consciousness I was when I started. Mm. When I got back to the drug was normal adult life, mundane. And I was like, I just started to shake because I was like, this is not what I wanted. You know, what do I do now? And so I'm looking at my phone and the first thing I want to do is what I'm doing is making a plan to get drugs. And my son walks into the, the kitchen and he's looking at me and I looked at him and I just ran outside. And so <clears throat> I ran outside and I ran into the woods and I'm just like trembling and crying. And I'm just asking like, whatever's out there, <laughs> you know, like, something's got to happen right now because I'm going to make a choice and I'm going to lose all of this again. Mm. I know I'm going to repeat this pattern. And I swear when I open that up and I'm speaking to the universe, I, this almost audible voice comes to me and says, look at the tree and do and, and mock it and, and do what it's doing. And I was like, what? I looked over to the right and there was this De decaying dead tree laying in the grass like all the stuff over it. and I was like I have to die completely I have to die to everything I know that I am mm -hmm. and that that moment is when I started my spiritual uh awakening um and that that next chapter would be you know dead to me or, or something like that but that's when I started to look at everything about myself and and killing it yeah. You know, I had to look at my beliefs, my patterns, what did I, my thoughts, my words, who, everything that I knew at that point about myself was given to me by someone else. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, and I'm so I was like, right now, because this is like something that so many people, whether they are aware of it or not, can relate to. And it's, it's just this idea that like, so Dallas just got sober, right? He put in the work, he's doing all the things and he's still feeling empty, alone, broken and scared. And it's because what he's about to realize or he's starting to realize on his spiritual journey is like, oh shit, I need to, I need to deal with everything from my past. I need to deal with everything from my upbringing and my parents. And if I don't do some degree of that work, this cycle is just going to continue and continue and and you mm -hmm. will end up dead, I'm guessing. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Um, and and that's when I just I just started just digging in, you know, because without the meth, everything was exposed and I was raw and it was time to do the work. 
Uh, and that's when I just started. It, it, it takes time. You know, it's incremental. It's small steps. I wanted it to happen right now. And, you know, when you have this epiphany and the spiritual awakening, you're like, I'm better, yep. <laughs> you know, but then you have to experience life and you just layer after layer after layer. Um, and <clears throat> part of my sobriety has been plant medicine. As I mentioned to you, I think um, I found a community of people who introduced me to uh, an ayahuasca. Um, that's been part of my healing because that, that, those experiences, for one thing, I found a community who accepted me unconditionally and didn't like, they, they didn't judge me, but they also, there wasn't any pressure that I felt for me being an NA wasn't good for me because it just added on a lot of shame and a lot of milestones that I couldn't reach and just pressure, you know, I didn't need pressure. There was already pressure to support my kids and pressure to be an adult and pressure to work. And I, I just, I needed somewhere where I could just be finally. And this is the finally, finally, I found my tribe where I could just be me mm -hmm. without any of it. And so that they became my support group. Um, and ayahuasca became kind of my my way of digging into the layers, through the layers and figuring out in what direction I needed to yeah. go in. Hey, Dallas, um, for those that might not be familiar with ayahuasca, can you give yeah. us a breakdown of what that is? Sure. So it's um, typically found in South America. It's uh, a mixture of two. It's a vine, um, two vines. And it's it's one of the most powerful psychedelics on the planet. Um, it's typically, it, it's kind of illegal <laughs> in the United States, um, but there's some places that do it if they have a church and yep. it's in an established church. Um, but so you drink, you, it, it's made into a tea and you drink the tea. Um, and it has a different effect on you every time. I think Chelsea Handler made it popular with her Netflix series. Chelsea does drugs or ch ch whatever that was. A lot of people know it from that. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a vine. It's basically, it, it, it's one of the oldest methods of enlightenment that's natural on the earth and shamans have been using it for thousands of years. Um, so for me, one of the first things it was doing for me was showing me in my past what brought me here. And so there were memories that were suppressed and, you know, all this time I thought it was my dad's fault mm -hmm. and ayahuasca sent me back to when I was four years old and I and then I remember this situation where I had just seen Dolly Parton on the TV and I was in this room pretending to perform you know I was like four I was like standing on my tiptoes like I was on high heels and I was like just singing and performing and my mom my sweet mom who I love to death and who can be thanked for me being alive right now didn't know better but she jumped in the room and she just jumped all over me you know, don't act like a girl. And what are you doing? And stop that. That was the first time my impressionable brain heard the message. It's not okay to be you. And so I, those kinds of moments and those kinds of memories help shape and, and, and help you understand why you are the way you are. And then you can go from there. Mm -hmm. And because it's still, it's, it is definitely, it's the definition of enlightenment. I'm enlightened now. That's why all my life I was, I'm so hidden and I didn't want to be me. And that's why everything I found reasons to support that 
was that one moment when I was four years old, that was the message that was loud and clear. And <clears throat> so anyway, that ayahuasca has helped me uncover those memories, but also helped me get to a place of complete and utter self-love, which is a return to myself. Mm-hmm. A self that arguably you almost never had. It was like a rebirth. How would you define self-love for yourself now? What does that mean to you? So for me, what it means is loving everything that comes up. So if it is anger, if it's fear, if it's a quote unquote mistake, um, emotions that come up is just loving that and, and, and talking to it, right? If, if I have a resentment that comes up, I would say, to, you know, I see you're there. What are you, what are you wanting to show me? Um, that's loving all of you. Um, and so I, <clears throat> it's loving all of your parts and it's integrating those parts and treating you as, as one human. And that's, that's what self-love has been, has been for me, um, is this showing myself grace, um, being patient with myself, but, but more often than not, it's just loving everything that comes up because when I make a mistake or when I do something that, you know, that I've been working on, but I do it anyway, I can have two reactions to that, you know, and self-love says, it's okay. What can we learn from that? But the, the opposite is I can't believe I'm doing that or I'm such a failure. You know, it's that it's that whole shame and guilt cycle that that I've been in all of my life than when it returns. So thank you. I'm curious. Hey, my little dog is barking. That's enough out of your small mouth. Um <laughs> I'm curious to hear from you, and I know this is one of the reasons it was really important to tell your story today, was for parents, um, or I guess addicts that have children, for them to hear you and hear your story. And I'm curious, the journey with your children, obviously there was you coming out and then very aggressively getting into your addictive years. Can you speak a little bit to the repair of the relationship? Maybe what struggles you're still having today um, with that relationship with your kiddos? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. At first I thought that I was going to have to put in a bunch of effort to get their, their forgiveness and, and make their amends, you know, and I think it's, whatever step eight or something where you make amends with everyone you've you've offended but the kids I really thought that I was going to have to do something and so at first I started to try to be father of the year and you know get them Christmas presents and and, um, just do acts of service and things like that to show them that I wasn't that I was better Um, But what I realized really soon is that all they needed was for me to be present. And that was the biggest, the the greatest gift that they could have had was I was just there. Um, The other, the other thing that I struggled with though, was the guilt from what I had done. And so I would act out of guilt and I would react out of guilt. So if, if one of them would do something wrong or something that looked bad, like fail a test, I took it personally that it was, oh, this is because you're a drug addict and you weren't there for them and you didn't help them, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's the the story that would play in the back of my mind every time I always put it back into me. So I really had to realize that 
whatever decisions I made when I was under the influence do not inform the parent I am now. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I don't have to continue to go back and make up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, all they wanted was for me to be there. Yeah. That's all they ever wanted. Um, and that is what repaired our relationship is just being present. I, whatever they, when, when they needed me, I was there. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't trying to do anything. I wasn't trying to be there. I wasn't trying to come to their games and all that kind of stuff is whenever they needed me, I made sure that I was available and that made the big difference. And today we're closer than we've ever been. I mean, the three of us have a, a relationship that I think most parents would probably dream of, <laughs> to be honest. The, that's amazing and I think what's interesting about when you were married nuclear family and hearing you say that the most important thing to your children is for you to be present arguably I'm sure there was even though you were doing all the things you were paying all the bills you were doing all the jobs like there was a huge piece of you that wasn't present for you know up until when you could actually come out and tell your loved ones, like, this is who I am. Um, and part of who I am is being a gay man. And obviously the, the addictive years, you were physically not present, um, right. <laughs> as well as emotionally. And now kind of what I was thinking when you were sharing this was your past experiences, not informing your present is the same way that you so beautifully laid out your story in chapters. Like this is yeah. just this chapter of life. This is this season of life with my children. And does it mean that we ignore and brush under the rug all the experience of the past? No, it doesn't mean that, but it means that this experience today, the way that you show up as a parent today is wholly present in today's chapter and today's season of life with your children. And I think the idea of being present is something that so many of us can can learn from, take a note on today, because whether it's an addictive substance or not, just being present to our children is the hugest gift we can give them. I know years into sobriety, it's still the only thing my daughter wants from me, right? Like <laughs> when I yeah. turn my my notifications off from, I have a rule from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Like there's no, you know, social media, no phones. And like, that's like the biggest gift I could give her. Um, just that idea of being fully present with your loved ones, with your children, especially. And it's no surprise you jumped to like acts of service, I think coming into recovery, because I think a lot of us would do that, but it's, I just love that you say be present because if we can just put 200% of effort and energy into that concept, then by default, we're going to be giving our children what they need. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Really. You, you said it a lot better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, question for you now in recovery in your you know well on your way in your spiritual journey and self-understanding what does the gay community look like for you now Mm -hmm. is that a healthy community have you been able to navigate that and maybe also just speak a little bit to just meth in the gay community and and what what that really looks like because I know that's something that's news to me I'm learning about from you today yeah, and, and that's, it's interesting. So there is a documentary, if anyone's interested in it, it's called Crystal City. 
Um, it's a documentary that was um, videoed in New York City, and um, it it really does a good job of portraying what's going on in the gay community because crystal meth is an epidemic. And if you don't think it's in your area, you're wrong. It's everywhere. And like I said, it preys on people who have low self-worth, who are steeped in shame, who have had to su suppress who they are sexually. It's like, it's like someone said, let's put ingredients together that, that will uh, target specifically the gay community and make them, you know, make them addicted to it or whatever. I didn't say that really right, but you know, it's like the perfect storm for a, uh, for a gay man because it's very sexual. Um, it makes you a sex zombie. You just want to do nothing but have sex and watch porn for days. Um, and then you're spit out on the other side of it. And if you don't use more then the, the withdrawal, you haven't eaten, you know, you haven't slept and then you go through these withdrawals and you can't function. And then all the dopamine leaves and you're left with this emotional bottom that is just, it, it's so hard to face that you'll just use again, just so you don't have to. Um, and that was the cycle that I was in every time when they did, you know, when the people did leave, when the, the guys did leave, um, I would spiral downward because again, that abandonment was there and I was like, they're gone. And, and then, I, you know, and it also made me fell in love, fall in love with every one of them that came to my house. <clears throat> um, but it's an epidemic and it, like I said, it, it targets your brain in a, in this way that it slowly eats away at who you are. Mm -hmm. And I watched my best friend, I lost him because the light went out in his in his eyes like he became a zombie a, a shell of someone else because it's like it's like heroin wants you to die but meth wants to make you wish you were dead mm. it won't kill you because you don't really hear about a lot of meth overdose mm -hmm. it's, no, it's fentanyl or heroin or whatever but meth just makes you want to die but you can't <laughs> You know, it's just it's it's just um it's a miserable state, but it's everywhere. And again, it's in, in it's growing in the younger crowd for some reason, the young gay crowd. Um it I think it it's again it it helps them feel validated, it helps them feel wanted, um, it helps them not suppress their sexual urges and in, in their sexuality. Um and I just I I I want to help. And I want to do something. That's why I went into coaching is there's still a segment of of gay men who are living a quote unquote normal life with a partner, but still go and do it once in a while. They can't stop. Like they get the urge to have, a you know, a sex weekend. Um, and so that's those are the people. Those are the guys that are coming to me for coaching right now is that it's like they're trying to move forward, but they can't. They're in that middle um, but you asked me about how, what the gig community is like now. And the thing is, is that when I real, when I realized that a lot of my experiences in the beginning with the gay community wasn't about them, it was about my beliefs about me. I looked for reasons to not belong, you know, and I, I went to the wrong crowds. I mean, if you go to the, you know, to the dance club on Saturday night, that's not going to be a true indication of the gay community. It's going to be a segment of them. And, um, you know, I was a 40 year old man walking in there, 
you know, it, it's not like they were just going to, I don't know. It, it, I just didn't fit either. And so it, so for me, what has, what has happened is that I've attract, I've attracted without doing anything, just because changing myself, I've attracted a different type of person. So I've made the type of gay friends that are accepting and that that aren't judging me that aren't in clicks they invite me along you know it's just i had to change myself first yeah before before anything else uh, fell into place and so i had and um the, the other part of all of that is the hiv sec uh, hiv talk but that would be another another podcast um but that's a whole other level of shame and a whole other level of trying to be accepted and you know this the the fear out there because HIV and, and meth use go hand in hand because it, all of meth um, sex uh, is all unprotected. I mean, it's it's a given. There's no there's no ever any condoms in in a in a meth sex party. <laughs> yeah, situation. Well, and I think and and I think you're right. It's it's a a conversation we would want to dedicate its own kind of time and energy to, to talk about HIV, but I will say, and I don't know if you can speak to this because I certainly don't know the statistics or, or what it means, but I, I know that the stigmas surrounding HIV today are 40 year old stigmas um, and, and what it means to live with and what it means to have a partner and et cetera with HIV in 2023, like, maybe the average person walking on the street thinks it's still 1982 and you know we're talking about the same the same kind of situation yeah. i don't know if you can speak to that at all so, um, again i don't want to kind of brush over this topic yeah, because yeah. i think it does yeah. deserve you know yeah. a good amount of attention but if you had anything to say about that sure i in my experience um uh, you know i'm in north carolina right now um in some of the southern states um, there's still a lack of knowledge about HIV. And if you're undetectable, it's untransmittable. You know, what PrEP means, how you, you know, what, if you, if you're on PrEP and you, and you have sex with an undetectable person, the chances of you contracting anything is, or contracting HIV is totally almost minimal. Um, I have found in my, when I'm traveling or I meet someone from maybe, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to cast the judgment on North and South, but it seems like some of the more populated areas in the North have a better understanding of it for some, for whatever reason. Um, there's just, there's some, some areas that, that rural areas, they, they hear HIV, they immediately think AIDS and they immediately just block you or shame you. You know, I've had, I've had all the treatment, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's always been a struggle with me of when do I tell people, when do I tell a guy that I have HIV? Because it used to be the first thing I would say, because I was so ashamed of it mm -hmm. that I would say, okay, I was a meth addict and I have HIV. So do you still want to date? Do you still want to talk to me? You know? <laughs> all the cards are on the table. <laughs> right. Um, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of men who say, no, I'd rather not risk my, you know, my health. Um, and so, and that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't judge that, but there's also a, there's just this element of not being educated. And if you are a man having sex with a man, you should, I hate to use the word should, but it would be, it would very, it would benefit you greatly if you educated yourself yeah. on the science mm -hmm. and, and what, what the risk is 
and 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 um you know what it takes to be undetectable i mean i the thing is is i take a pill every morning with my vitamins and that's the only reason i even know i have hiv right. it's just yeah yeah no i i agree i think it's these preconceived notions that you know i'm i'm 40 so i have a i have a a view an edu- my educated view of hiv is probably 20 years old right like it, right. Yeah. it just simply doesn't apply today and i think that's again such a great lesson that we can apply broadly is like just educate yourself. Um, I forget who it was that said, it, it was probably Jay Shetty because I'm obviously trained by Jay Shetty. So like yeah. anything I say is Jay Shetty, but um, but he has such a great rule of thumb and I love this. And it this just, this conversation made me think of it was if you are entering into a conversation with somebody and maybe a question is asked or a topic is brought to the table and you think that you know anything less than 50% about that topic, then just pretend you know nothing at all and open your mind, be inquisitive, be curious and just learn. And I love that. And I'll joke with my husband all the time because I'll like start talking about something and he'll like being the polite British man that he is, he'll like pretend to like, you know, go along with it and appreciate what I'm saying. And I'm like, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? (laughs) I'm like, then don't pretend, you know, but I think it goes, it can benefit us in so many ways. Just like, um, just that rule of thumb. If you know less than 50% of, if you think you know less than 50% about something, then just pretend you know nothing at all and just learn and soak it up. And that absolutely applies to, you know, the HIV conversation that we're having. It applies to the meth conversation that we're having. I told you offline, like, Hey, that's a drug. I was just never introduced to it. Never crossed my path. Um, Mm -hmm. Ayahuasca, right? If, if your immediate thought when you heard Dallas bring up ayahuasca, if your immediate thought was, Ooh, that's scary. I don't know what that is. How, how could he be doing that? If there was a trace of judgment in your mind, again, I ask yourself, I'm not asking you to form the opinion that Dallas has or to do what Dallas has done, but I'm just asking you to open your mind and just, just learn. It's not going to hurt any of us to learn more. Um, and so, you know, everything that you are bringing to the space and speaking so openly and honestly and vulnerably about is helping so many people. And I'm, I'm so grateful to you that we've been connected in this way and that you are really taking your own real experience and saying like, Hey, how can I, how can I use that to help help people in similar or, you know, the same situations. So thank you so much for everything that you are, are really embarking on. It's not just a spiritual journey for yourself. You're embarking on a journey that's going to change lives. So thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about what you're doing to change lives. I know, I know a little bit about the coaching business that you've started and what you're doing, but if people want to talk more to you, get in touch with you, find out more about, you know, some of the clients that you're working with, um, tell us, tell us what you're doing. So I, you know, I only started the coaching business at the first of the year 
of 2023. And um, I wasn't sure what my, my niche was going to be. You know, as you know, they tell you to niche wide or whatever. Um, I'm kind of letting it come to me, but <clears throat> recovery is what I know. I mean, for the most part. Um, and But I have also found that I've limited myself because to remind myself, you have a doctorate in leadership. <laughs> so you do know something about leadership too. I just forgot because <laughs> that was... <laughs> That was before meth, you know, um, and so I'm I'm also I'm trying to figure out where who is going to be interested in working with me. But so far, um, like I said, it's it's gay men who they're you know I'm one of the few that actually make it public that I was addicted to meth because there's such a stigma around it, and you're afraid to say anything, especially online. You know, I get people. Tech, I get I get messages literally every day all around the world from men who say I am trapped by this drug I don't know what to do that you're the one of the only ones that you know that you you kind of you are our voice you know I don't want to put too much on me but but I'm one of the people talking about it and so um, I'm helping men in this in between stage so they're not in the throes of active addiction but they're not sober and um, they're, they're trying to live a life, but they keep going back to it maybe once a month or they, they take a weekend here or there. Um, and that's dangerous. It's very dangerous to do that because you could easily fall back in it. Um, especially those that haven't, it, those that are just smoking it. So if you, there's a difference between smoking it and of course using it intravenously when you, when you use a needle the first time you're done, I mean, it, the, the, the statistics show that once you've started using intravenously, the chances of you being sober, is it, it goes, you know, way down. Um, but it's men who just need to know why they keep going back to it. And it always it goes back to what I've said. It's going, you have to trace it back to what those stories were in the beginning that caused you to get there. Yeah. Um, it's getting a, getting rid of meth does not fix you. And a lot of a lot of them think that. And so what I'm trying to do is is help guys, gay men to, for one thing, just feel less shame around it, um, but also figure out what it is that's bringing them back and interrupt that pattern. Yeah, I love that. And thank you so much for saying that you can stop the meth, but it's not going to fix you. It's not going to change you. And that, again, applies to obviously we do a lot of conversations here and a lot of stories on the podcast um, where alcohol is the drug of choice. And I feel like I say that every week, like just because we're putting down the bottle or just because we're mm -hmm. taking 90 days off, you know, we're, we're not even scratching the surface. We're not even... <laughs> you know, right. of, of, of the work that needs to be done. So, you know, what I'm hearing is like, Dallas, you, you really found your rock bottom. That's different for a lot of people. You were gracious enough to share that story and that experience with us today. And I'm hearing you intervening there and saying like, whoa, wait a second, you don't have to get there. Like this kind of like middle ground individual that is, you know, where you were at one point on your, on your addictive journey. Um, but they don't have to be arrested four times. They don't have to, you know, be sitting in a park with their children, you know, pleading. Um, and so again, that's such an important, important role that you're playing. And I'm excited for, um, how it's going to evolve and morph as your journey continues to evolve and morph and grow. So thank you so much for 
just being here and being so open and honest and sharing your truth and sharing a hard truth that a lot of us um, maybe haven't heard of, um, haven't listened to, haven't given the time. And so I'm really grateful that we're going to be able to uh, produce this for for individuals to really take some time to to process on their own. So thank you for being here, Dallas. Appreciate it so much. I do have one more question for you. It is a final question that I ask every individual who comes onto the podcast. And I'm curious your response based on your experiences. It's a hypothetical question. So we are going to assume that everybody is going to follow your answer. And the question is, if you could create one rule or one law as it relates to addiction, sobriety, recovery, et cetera, and that one rule or law would, of course, make the world a better place, what would that one rule or law be? You know, I think that I would ask that the word relapse be taken out of our vocabulary and that I would stop the the habit of counting days sober in the beginning because I know for me when I did relapse it was not a stumbling block it was actually a stepping stone to better things Mm -hmm. and it was a chance to learn and it was a chance to regroup but it's so it's portrayed in this scary way this failure way this wrapped in shame and so when you're first starting to get sober you're already you know like I said it's raw nerve and you're already ashamed, especially especially a gay man who's been using meth. The things that we do are off the charts, and you already feel so guilty about that. And then you're putting this pressure of can't relapse, you can't use, you know, total abstinence. I just I feel like if we could take a different approach um, based on what what has worked worked, but now I think we need to take it a different approach to it so that we can have a a, a better um, percentage of of people being sober faster and longer especially when it comes to gay men and Christmas I mean so much of our journey leading up to addiction and in our addictive years are about that shame and guilt cycle and so does it really make sense for us to be instilling a system aka counting days where by definition we're going to continue that cycle of shame and guilt right yes like right. doesn't make right. sense <laughs> that's what i think and you know and i always say if you're one day sober or a thousand days sober you're both still one decision away hundred percent hundred percent i could i love that i could not agree more i could not agree more one day or a thousand days you're still one decision away boom mic drop dallas <laughs> brag everybody thank you so much for being here dallas together sober listeners thank you so much again for tuning in week after week we know your survival guide and your survival kits are getting fuller and fuller and we've just added another addition to that today together sober listeners thank you again and you will hear from us next week with another story If you're still listening right now, I'm going to assume that you really liked this episode. And if that's the case, can you please go ahead and rate and review the Together Sober podcast? What this does is organically puts the podcast into more listeners' ears, thus creating more lasting and effortless sobriety and mental peace for others.